This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome, everybody, to the Full Scale Outdoors podcast. I am Dale Luganville. Thank you very much for joining me. Pretty excited to announce this episode, this next guest. I uh, played a pivotal part in me finally getting off my ass to get my podcast going because I was listening to his podcast, and it's very motivational. His name is Tom Rowland, and if you watch uh, some fishing shows, you probably know who he is. If you're watching saltwater fishing anyways, he is part of a lot of different projects. He's a busy, busy man. He has his own podcast, the Tom Rowland Podcast. And he's a part of the Saltwater Experience, Into the Blue, Sweetwater Television. And he's also uh, a part of the Waypoint Outdoor Collective and Waypoint TV. So he's super busy. Um, Big name in the industry, as far as I'm concerned. Um, They make a great – their television shows are just phenomenal. So if you don't already watch – his shows and you're, and you're interested in, in saltwater fishing for sure. Um, check out, check out those shows. It's pretty awesome. Why I contacted Tom and, and this isn't, this one isn't so much like our normal ones as far as like getting his story, you know, how'd you start that, that kind of pretty stereotypical podcast model. What I did is I reached out because I personally am interested in, Goliath groupers like we've all seen the videos and the TikToks and the YouTubes of somebody catching you know like black dip H or whoever catching these giant giant Goliath group groupers I want to catch one it's on my bucket list um very stereo I, I feel all the cliches I want to catch it jump in the water get that picture blah 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 but there's some controversy going on in Florida right now because some people think there's too many and they want a uh, limited harvest on them because it's been shut down They've been protected for a long, long time now. And then, of course, there's some people on the other end that don't want that want to keep them protected for forever. And we draw some analogies to, or at least I do, because as he was talking, it reminded me a lot of what we're facing here in Minnesota as far as, like, wolves are concerned. 
with some people wanting to protect them no matter what, always, like they're untouchable. And then you have other people that want to say, okay, there's enough. We need to start hunting them. And you're either in one of these two camps, but there's a lot of nuance in between. And just like the wolf uh, issue here in Minnesota, I see not just both sides, but I see all sides and all the nuance in the middle. And Tom sees that he lives it down in Florida with the Goliath grouper. So that's the main focus of this podcast. That's why I reached out to him and, and he volunteered to to be on the show. And uh, so I'm pretty, pretty stoked to introduce this one. I am not going to ramble anymore. Let's get into it. This is the Full Scale Outdoors podcast with Tom Rowland. <laughs> Oh, here we go, boys. Go. Oh, I love that sound. This is a good one. All right, joining me today, I have Tom Rowland. I'm pretty uh, excited about this, Tom. I've, I gotta give right out of the gate. I gotta give you some credit as far as the podcast goes. I was listening to your podcast for quite a while while I was contemplating starting mine and the normal like not doing it for no real good reason. And then I was just, I don't know if you had a one of your episodes was about like starting your own podcast, which is very possible. But I think I just was like, you know what? Screw it. I got to just do it. So I got to give you credit for finally kicking my butt and right getting me on, off the man. couch to start in this. So that was like three years ago. This will be episode 200 right on the nuts. Wow. Well, good job, man. Congratulations. That's that's awesome. And uh, there's a lot to be said for kind of sticking with it because at first, I, I don't know, you know, it, it kind of grows slowly, but it does grow and it will grow if you keep doing it. And I think, I don't know, I read some stat that there were like 90% of the podcasts out there have less than five episodes because people just kind of start and then they just, oh, I thought it'd be better than this and they just quit. And um, I, I don't know. It's very easy to do that. But if you just stick with it, it tends to tends to grow. Yeah, there's weird, there's really weird stats out there like that, like five or I think I, think I read or heard seven. Like if you can make it past seven, episodes mm -hmm. then you have a x percent of chance of doing it a whole year and then if you can do it past a full year then it's like then you've really now now you've really joined like the top 10 percent of all podcasts that are out there because yeah. i mean podcasts i mean i believe it up. yeah it's it's kind of crazy but so yeah. <laughs> you have tom Rowland podcast you have a part of a few different television shows, <laughs> yeah. all of which I yeah. have watched at one point in time or another. Uh, you, I kind of live vicariously through you Florida guys as I'm up here in mm. Minnesota. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, it's uh, probably nice up there right now, but you can live super vicariously about December, I would imagine, January, February. I mean, I like um, I like winter. I like ice fishing. I, I like all yeah. of it, but um, I also like saltwater fishing, so and yeah. The, and the keys and stuff like that. And that big blue water. That's always, it's just always been a draw. I don't know if it's just because it was like the, no pun intended, the polar opposite of what we had here in Minnesota, but I just like it. I like all different kinds of fish. I like all different kinds of fishing. Um, 
I'm I'm one of those I'm one of those guys that like I like everything. I don't like I'm not like a diehard dry fly only fisherman. You know, I, mm-hmm. I love fly fishing. I don't I hardly I haven't done it in years, but I love it. Um but it's, as far as the species goes, I want to I literally would love to catch one of everything if that was possible. Yeah. Don't care about the size. Like just check yeah. that one off the list. Let's go. But yeah, I'm with you. I think that I think that every fisherman kind of if you stick with it long enough, you can look back over over your fishing life or fishing career, whatever you want to call it. And, and you can see where like, maybe that's a stage for you right now. Like I want to catch as many possible species as I can, or somebody else might go through this thing where they, they learn about dry fly fishing. And then they're like, well, that's all I want to do. And then you, you know, you do it for a while until you're like, Oh, well, maybe I want to try something else now or some other door opens. Somebody shows you a new technique and you're like, Oh, streamer fishing is pretty awesome, you know, or, and then that's all you want to do. And, and really in order to get good at any of it, you do have to have kind of those, those periods where you do that particular thing a lot. Otherwise, I mean, I mean, that's how you get good at anything, right? Like you just do it a lot. Right. Well, and, um, like on your, your everybody your, goes through these different stages, right? Your current episode, I believe you have a master fly tire. I think I haven't listened to it yet, but I got the notification yeah. that it was live <laughs> as of this morning. So that's probably what I'll listen to as I do uh, work today. But uh, yeah, it's, I get exactly what you're saying. Like you can, you, you can do all of it, but then everybody's different as far as what aspect of it grabs them. And then they want to master that thing, or at least master it to a certain level before they move on to the the next right. thing and i have definitely done that throughout my life i've gone through like all right this summer i'm gonna target big flatheads on the river or this year i want to i gotta work on deep jigging for bass or, or whatever the thing might be and as much as i like catching big fish a lot of times that doesn't really enter into it um even on a small microcosm level like there'll be days i'll just decide you know what i'm gonna drive up to the north shore uh lake superior fish the small little tributaries there. I'm going to catch trout that are five to six inches long, and I'm going to just have a blast doing it because the the journey getting there, the hiking, the topography, the the views, you just you can't beat it. And it doesn't really have much to do with the fish itself as mm-hmm. it is everything else around it. And, I, I mean, I get I get off on that as much as I do anything else. I mean, yeah. Pretty awesome. because you're a real fisherman. Like, <laughs> well, you, depends you on like it, you know, I mean, you yeah. can tell like that's, it's like, I don't know, like the more you get into fishing, it seems like the less it becomes about the fish. Like, I don't know. There's certainly stages, like we were talking about stages of your fishing career, fishing life, where it's all about the fish. But then as you mature a little bit, you get older, you get more experience. Then it's like, well, yeah, of course I want to catch, you know, this giant fish that I'm after, but it's really more about, I'm just thankful to be here, man. I'm just thankful that, that I have this opportunity. I'm just thankful that, you know, I can do this. And if, if we catch one, you know, we're obviously going to do everything we can to try to catch this thing, but I'm happy. Like, you know, you're just happy doing it. Right. And I lo- and, and bringing other people into it too. I mean, that's the other yeah. thing a trans, you know, as far as guiding is concerned, I, get way more enjoyment if somebody else catches a big fish than if I catch a big fish. Love catching big fish, especially when I'm by myself or my brother and nephew. I like catching the big fish if they're with me, mm-hmm. but anybody else, literally anybody else, I hope they catch the big fish or they catch the most <laughs> fish. Like that's, 
that'd be cool. With that said, like when I go down and check stuff off. So my brother lives in South Carolina. I get down there about once a year. I'd love to get down there more, but you know, life gets in the way and we go red fishing out there. And, um, well, we guess we fish for all sorts of stuff, but the one year we trailered his boat down to, uh, Isla Mirada in the keys. Stayed down there for a week. That was a ton of fun. And we got a guide for the first day on our boat, just kind of show us the waters, which was super invaluable. Um, our goals during that trip were to catch tarpon and a Goliath grouper, neither of which we really ever fished for. (laughs) (laughs) We got sidetracked with all sorts of other stuff. So our guide kind of among showing us like, you know, the where to travel and how, and you know, the hazards to look out for and stuff like that. With him that day, we targeted um, like snook and kubera snappers, which we mm-hmm. didn't, I don't think we caught either of those either. We caught a bunch of different <laughs> kinds of snappers and kudas and, and whatever else, but it was a lot of fun. I'm pretty sure I had some kubera bites, but it was, well, you got to, that's harder than it sounds, like to get those things yeah. out of that riprap and yeah, even detect the bite is you come back and most of your bait is chopped up you're like sure the guy's like yeah that was that was a kubera i was like dang it (laughs) i'll get this eventually which i never did and then we'd have nice days we were able to run out and chase yellowtail so we just kept getting distracted uh basically it's like next time i go down there that's what i want to do and i know i'm not alone in this as far as the goliath grouper phenomenon being attracted to it like and I want when I finally get to do it, I want to do all the cliche stuff. I'll, I'll, I'll unabashedly be that guy. Like I want to get in the water, take that picture. Like it's just, I love that. It's cool. And I, mm-hmm. I also think the only way to get a true perspective of the size of these fish is to show you with it. So you're like, right, this thing's bigger than me. Like right. literally bigger than me. Um, I think that'd be cool. Although I did just see something come across social media where somebody did that. The picture was of a Goliath that was basically cut in half by a big bull shark. And mm. the story was they had just done that. They caught the client, caught this fish. He jumped in. They took the picture. They had just gotten the person back in the boat, and that bull showed up like seconds later and cut that thing in half. Mm. It's like, mm. Yeah, it's a mean place out there, man. Maybe I don't want to do that. <laughs> where those fish live, lots of other things do. And right. in certain situations, they're the alpha, and in other situations – you know, they're, they're not what there's um, always a bigger fish is that's the old, that's right. the old adage. Right. But on to that, um, I'd like to get more into your story too. And maybe we'll touch on that later. Maybe that's a different podcast for a different time, but I went on, uh, the, the waypoint outdoor collective. We have a page where we all talk and I was interested in trying to find someone to talk about Goliath groupers because there's a lot of controversy surrounding it. And I think we can draw a lot of parallels with what's going on with the Goliath, with any kind of conservation game issue, whether it's elk or a type of fish, your muskies in Minnesota or, you know, Goliaths in Florida. But, um, again, I don't, I don't know how many of my fellow Minnesotans are, are as attracted to the idea of Goliaths or as interested in what's going on down in Florida right now, but I'm, crazy interested in it so that's what i would really like to talk about today sure um so yeah. with with that 
I'll give you the floor and I'll, I'll interject with some questions from time to time. Well, sure. I mean, lots of people have been exposed to the Goliath grouper in the last few years because of like YouTube accounts, black tip H does a lot of it. And a lot of other people do. And, and it, it's an incredible fish. It is a fish that grows to um, upwards of 800 pounds. Um, literally not like an exaggeration. Like they have been weighed at 800 pounds. There's probably bigger ones out there. Today, you can't, uh, they are protected. You can't take them out of the water. You can't harvest them. So you look at a fish and you go, oh, that thing looks like it's a thousand pounds. Well, maybe it's 600. I don't know. It's huge. It's bigger than you. In a lot of cases, it might be bigger than the boat you're fishing in. It's a massive fish. So having that fish out there is really cool. Like that is really cool that those fish are out there, that they, that they are, are very healthy and thriving because it wasn't always the case. Um, the Goliath grouper is now known as the Goliath grouper one, you know, not too long ago, it was known as the Jewfish. So maybe people have heard about a Jewfish or Goliath grouper, or maybe they're confused between the two, like what, and, and then there's another fish, um, which is in Australia, which is an extremely close relative, which is called the Qu Queensland groper, like not a grouper, but a groper. And um, that is almost exactly the same species. There would be some, you could look at the fish and most people wouldn't be able to tell the difference between them. But these fish are, are basically spread uh, through the warm waters of the world. And um, just a real interesting fish because a lot like a fish that, that your listeners would know a lot about, the largemouth bass, they are kind of an ambush, even more so than the largemouth bass. They're an ambush feeder. So the Goliath grouper, like earlier, I said that in, in a lot of cases, they're the alpha. In other cases, they're not. When, an, when a Goliath grouper is in its natural habitat, it wants to be in like some sort of a cave protection where, where it has basically three sides of protection, maybe even four, five sides of protection. If you look at it above it, below it, and both sides and behind it, there's nothing there. Like it's, they get in shipwrecks, they get in caves, they get in holes, they get in these areas where they're getting lots of protection and they ambush whatever is there. And sometimes they will come out and get fish like a permit, like a 30 pound permit could get eaten off the surface by a giant Goliath grouper like a bass eats a, eats a frog. Um, it's pretty amazing to see that. Um, and they can be that aggressive. They'll come out and get a lot of things, but they'll also just sit right in that hole and wait for something to swim by and, and get it. And they eat a lot of crabs. They eat a lot of lobsters. They eat a lot of other fish, um, pretty much anything that would, would get in there. Now, if they get out like in the open, you know, chances are that nothing's going to mess with a big fish like that, but six or eight sharks might, you know, or one might take a, take a little bite out of it. There's some blood in the water. Maybe then you see like other ones come in and, and, you know, six sharks can definitely eat a Goliath grouper. So of, of any size, if, if they were turned on and ready, but you know, they also have to be ready that that thing could turn around and bite one of them in half. So, I mean, it's a, it's a rough place. <laughs> like we were saying, it's a rough place out there where they do live. And, um, you know, it's, it's, I don't know. It's cool. In my world, I'm glad that fish is out there. I'm glad that it's available to catch. 
there is some controversy to it that um, in a lot of cases and a lot of places, the Goliath grouper has become what a lot of anglers and uh, even scientists, I, I believe, uh, if you found the right scientist that would readily admit it, but it, it's out of balance. There are more than maybe there should be, um, you know, as a, as an angler, you're, you're looking at it and you're going, well, I haven't caught a, a yellowtail snapper yet. Like I've hooked 20 and I'm losing every single one. Maybe you're losing them to sharks. Maybe you're losing them to Goliath. Sometimes you actually hook the Goliath and can fight it all the way to the boat. And yeah, that's what ate your fish. And that's what's been eating all of your fish. And so, you know, a lot of people get in a situation to where if you're an ethical angler and you lose four or five fish and you know what's going on and you've already caught the Goliath there a couple of times and you know that there's a bunch of them there and you just got to move on. So it gets to be kind of a pain. Like you can't fish there, even though the fishing's great, even though you're having a fantastic day, every fish you hook is going to get eaten. And so you got to kind of say, well, what am I trying to do here? Like, am I trying to feed the Goliaths? Is this ethical? Like, you know, at some point you just kind of decide, and it's the same with sharks. I mean, the sharks have gotten incredibly um, out of, out of control in Florida. Now, I don't know, you hear about this worldwide decline of, of, of sharks, but it's not happening in Florida. The shark population is the most I've ever seen the most everybody I know has ever seen in the Florida Keys up the state of Florida. I mean, everyone is saying, my God, like whether you're spear fishermen, whether you're an above the water fisherman, a snorkeler, whatever, there are more sharks than there has ever been. And that may be, there may be a spike in this area and decline in other areas, but fact is it, it seems to be out of balance. Right. So, yeah. And that's the, I think you bring up a, a good point. It's like a species as a whole, or in this case, I mean, a family of fishes of, of sharks can, you know, someone can go and say sharks globally are on the decline or mm-hmm. have declined, but locally that's not necessarily the case. And like when I was saying, like, as you're talking, I, I'm my brain is just drawing all these comparisons to what we have going on here in Minnesota with the, with wolves. I was about mm-hmm. to say reintroduction mm-hmm. of wolves, but we never reintroduced them. They're just, they've always been here. In fact, when they were extirpated mm-hmm. from the rest of the lower 48, Northern Minnesota always had a handful of wolves cause they can come and they can cross, you know, once the, once Lake of the woods freezes and the rainy river, rainy Lake freezes, that's the border between Minnesota and Canada. They can just, they can come back and forth mm-hmm. as they want to. And, and they want to be here. So one of our things is like, you know, someone can say, wolves are recovered well wolves are recovered where because one of the arguments that they use against it is well they're they were historically in iowa well iowa doesn't have any wolves so therefore they're not fully recovered yeah well the topography of iowa today is Mm -hmm. not suitable for wolves where it is suitable for wolves they have returned and in some places and arguably much like what we're talking about here from what people are seeing you know anecdotal reports the farmers that live up there deer hunters they're like, there's so many wolves, and I hardly ever see deer anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, without getting too deep in the weeds on the wolf thing, I just I like to draw that comparison to make it um, analogous to anybody and whatever their particular issue is. But back to say sharks or even the Goliaths, it's you know there can be 
just like you said, there's there probably is more sharks down there than there mm-hmm. ever have been because of the protections. And and in a way that's great. You know, um sharks are cool. I like sharks. Um I hope they're always on the I guess I can't say landscape, the waterscape, the aquatic scape, <laughs> if you will. Um but oh, how they impact other species, you know, the whole environment, sometimes those numbers have to be managed and right. you have to look at, you can't look at the big picture sometimes. Sometimes you got to look at the small picture. And I think that may be from somebody who doesn't live there, <laughs> what's going on with the Goliaths as well. You know, it's for somebody yeah. to say, well, they haven't well, been fully recovered. Well, they have here in Tampa or wherever you right. are. Exactly. So you have a couple of things going on. First of all, you have several species that that elicit this emotional response too. wolf is one of them to where, you know, some people really have a fondness for them and maybe they never go outside. They just like to know that they're out there. And that's cool, too. I like to know that wolves are out there. And that's that's great. I mean, I was in when I started guiding, I started guiding in um, Yellowstone area and Jackson, Wyoming. And, and that was before the reintroduction of the wolves out there. And, you know, today it's a much different place. Personally, I like knowing wolves are there. I like, you know, having a chance to see them when I go to the national park, but if they got so overpopulated that other wildlife was, was not there or in danger, then you have to look in that small area. And sometimes when it comes to a wolf or a shark or maybe even the Goliath, people have an emotional attachment to that and they don't even, or a grizzly bears, another, another example. I mean, there are more bears out West than I've ever seen. It's, it's crazy how many, how many bears there are. And a lot of people say that there should be a, uh, some sort of a season on the grizzly as well. And it elicits this emotional response right away from people. Oh, grizzly bear hunting? No way. Like people remember when the grizzly bear was, was a species that was severely threatened. And some people would argue that it's severely threatened now, but other people that walk through Yellowstone national park all the time are telling you, uh, no, that's, they're not severely threatened uh, 30 years ago, I came here. I never saw a bear. I saw seven, like on this small little yeah. hike, you know, it's like, yeah. th- this is a different place than it was 30 years ago. So with the Goliath grouper specifically, um, the scientists have looked at this, like we're talking about and, and, and thought, okay, well, maybe it is time for some sort of harvest. And it has been proposed in 2018 uh, there was a proposal to allow the killing of a hundred of them. And it was going to be on some sort of a license thing to where you could buy a license for around $300. I think it was, yeah, 300 bucks. You could buy a license that would allow you to take one fish of a certain size that was going to be, you know, roughly like 70 to 200 pounds. So you're not taking the ultra huge one, but you're not taking the babies either. You're kind of getting just like a slot fish. Like Mm -hmm. you're, you're taking that size fish. And I don't know how they came up with that particular size. Um, but it was, and it wasn't ever really, it was, that was kind of like, it's going to be like around this. And, um, and then that license, interestingly, wasn't going to be like a deer tag where you have the whole season to, to, to get your deer or your turkey or whatever you're after, um, it was per week. So if you bought that license and you did not catch your fish or the right size fish 
and the week expired, you were going to have to buy another license. And then all of this money was going to go back into Goliath Group of Research. And so that became very controversial because when that was first and those those initial um, reactions you still hear today for and, and, and a lot of them are for really good reason. Like I tend to think that I can see both sides of this issue um, somehow. Like I'm not, I'm not adamantly on one side or the other. Like, for example, the people who want um, Goliath Grouper harvest are people who think that they're out of balance. Those people might include uh, or people that that the presence of lots of those animals makes what they do difficult. Okay, so a commercial yellowtailer, uh, a, a commercial fisherman of some sort that is trying to catch the fish, five out of 10 get eaten by a Goliath, they're, they're having a hard time making a living, right? That's, that's someone who might uh, not, you know, want harvest, or uh, maybe it's a fishing guide that says, well, if somebody could buy that license, they would hire me to go out there and help them catch it. That might be a good thing. It might be a good thing if uh, I go to one of these wrecks where I used to catch snappers and, and all kinds of other fish all the time. And I haven't seen any other fish there. It's all Goliaths. I dove it. it. There's 50 of them there and there are no other fish there. So I would like to see this area come back to a fishing area that I could go to. If I want to catch anything other than Goliaths, that might be somebody that, that would support um, that or like a charter guide who's just tired of having to move all the time and just thinks, well, I have a pretty good uh, knowledge of the ocean and this place has definitely changed and there is, it's, it, there's too many, right? So they're, they're making, they're using their experience. They're not a scientist, but they're using their experience and they're saying, wow, I've never seen anything like this before. It's not like this in other places. There are way too many here and there are no other fish. So the people that would oppose this and do so um, pretty strongly are like the dive operators. So a dive operator might see 25 to 50% of their um, revenues are because people are booking them so that they can go to this wreck and they can look at these giant Goliath groupers. Super important. And you got to respect that. That's, that's a beautiful thing. It's like an, an elephant safari. It's like, it's like seeing the lions in Africa, like, you know, people want to pay big money to go there and see a fish that's larger than they are. The only other place that you can do that is on the Great Barrier Reef in Australia, maybe, you know, I mean, like, and that's a long way. You can go, you can drive to, you know, the Keys and, and you can see one of these giant fish. You may have no desire to catch it. You may have no desire to kill it or eat it or whatever, but you can swim with one of these giant fish. And for the most part, it's probably not going to hurt you. Um, it could, but it might not. So you have those people, you have the photographers, the Goliath grouper is an incredible uh, species for photography, because basically if you can find them, it's just going to sit there. You can get real close to it and it will make a drumming noise that will scare you away if you're not used to it. And if you're, if you're, if that doesn't scare you away, you might get bit, your camera might get bit, something might get bit and these things don't mess around. I wouldn't get that close to one. It's a giant fish. I mean, the thing is three, four, 500 pounds. Like, I don't know. It's kind of like going and petting a bison in Yellowstone, like, or, or trying to scratch a grizzly bear on the, on the ear, like, like it's a dog. 
like probably not a good idea. So anyway, those guys, you know, the, the YouTubers and stuff, it makes for a great video, TV shows, anybody that catches one of these things and is doing it in front of an audience, it's a great fish for that too. So I can see both sides. I can see that, yeah, there may be too many of them, but I see all the benefits of having them all over here. Now there's another couple of reasons that people are opposed to beginning a harvest for them. Now, when you're talking about a hundred fish over the state of Florida, that is very, very minimal. Like it, I don't think that it would have any impact, but what it would do is it would open the door to, uh, okay, now you allow a hundred next year, you allow 200 next year, it's 500. I don't know, you know, but that's what some people are saying that as soon as you open that door, then it's easier to, to push through. Now, what happened in 2010, we had uh, a cold front that would make you and your audience uh, laugh because <laughs> it wasn't okay. really that cold. I, but heard, the, I the, heard about this. You know, in the, in the state of Florida, <laughs> if it gets 30 degrees down around Miami and stays that way for uh, a week or two, like what happened in 2010, it got really cold, kind of like what happened in Texas this year. Like you have this freak cold that comes through and it doesn't just blow through, it goes through and it stalls and stays there, right? So the Goliath grouper is a fish that, you know, for the most part, first six or seven years of its life, it's gonna live in somewhat shallow water under the mangroves uh, and, and eat crabs and lobster and small fish. And it is not a fish that's really fast. It's not a pelagic fish that, that like, a, like a tuna or a bonefish or something that can, that can leave. It's, it's mechanism for protecting itself is to get in a cave, right? And stay there. So when it gets really cold, they may go to an area that's 15 feet deep. That may be the deepest water within miles. And if it gets so cold that that 15 feet of water um, is, is not survivable for them, they just die. And in 2010, we lost a very, very significant number of fish. Then right now in Tampa Bay, you have this horrible situation of, of red tide. And I feel terrible for these people over there, man. I mean, there's this red tide that they're having in Tampa right now is horrible. And some people say that it's natural, but it's not natural. In my opinion, it is supercharged. Maybe the red tide is natural, but then when you have effluent and, and nutrients coming in from Okeechobee and all sorts of other places, everything from stuff people put on their lawn to cut down mangroves so that they can have a nice looking uh, seawall. All of that stuff makes a difference and you don't get the filtration that we used to have. You have more uh, nutrients, more fertilizer, more everything going into the water so that when you do have one of these events, now it's on steroids. It's supercharged. It's horrible. It might have been a small cloud of red tide. And today what they're dealing with is dead fish as far as you can see. And some of those are Goliath groupers. Some of them are large tarpons. Some of them are, you know, the majority of what you're seeing are, are small bait fish as far as you can see. But all of those fish were fish that didn't know how to get out of this area. And you can see the same thing that happens with the cold weather. They have whatever survival instinct they have is to go to a channel, whatever, because the, you know, that is usually good enough for one night of cold weather. But when it lasts for two weeks, 
stuff starts dying. Snook die, bonefish die, Goliath groupers die. And after 2010, we would go to the mangroves and I would, you know, while we're fishing for baby tarpon or snook or whatever, you'd see the Goliaths go by. So I got the idea, you know, a long time ago, I'm like, well, we can catch those, man. Like these guys come down here and they, they're bass fishermen, the biggest bass they've ever caught in their life is, is 11 pounds. And there's a 25 pound largemouth bass sitting under the mangroves. Like people would want to catch that, you know, and they do. And especially if you're using the right tackle and you can see it and you throw under there, it's amazing. It's an incredible fishery. And after 2010, you know, you go back there, 2011, 2012, 2013, 2014, you're still not seeing any under the bushes. You're, you're fishing to these areas that you, that you used to, and they're none there. They're none there. And now they've started to come back, but that is a big opposition to, to allowing the harvest of, of Goliath grouper is that that is an impending thing. Red tide is an impending thing. And I can see that argument too. Like, look, may, may be over, over, uh, we may be overrun with these things right now, but you never know what's going to happen. And if you allow the killing of 5,000 of these things, and then we have an event, now we're back to like 1960 where these things were really in critical danger. So nobody has a crystal ball. Nobody can tell you what's going on. And that's why I kind of, don't take one side or another. I see what the scientists are saying. I see what the dive operations are saying. I experience what the the, the commercial guys are, are are seeing. And like I, I don't know what the answer is. I think it would be perfectly fine to harvest some, and certainly that money would go into good use of trying to get you know more more research on that particular fish. Because if it's not a food fish typically you, you, you have very little uh, research on it, right? So like a, a tuna, there's lots of research on tuna. It's a massive food fish. It's a huge um, uh, uh, moneymaker, right? But when it comes to bonefish or permit or tarpon, that's why you have organizations like Bonefish Tarpon Trust, because no one else is studying these fish because nobody cares, right? It's not, a, it's not an economically viable fish other than catch and release, right? So you have to have some sort of a, a, a conservation group funded by people, individuals who care for whatever reason. Maybe it's that they're bird watchers and these are, these are beautiful birds and they just like looking at them. I don't know. It, it, you know, bone fishermen, they like to catch these fish. They like to see that there are lots of them. Permit fishermen, same thing. Tarpon fishermen, same kind of thing. But those fish don't have a, an economic value as a food fish. So you're not getting government studies on, on that. And, well, and the Goliath is a similar thing. You used to yeah. Jewfish sandwich was like, <laughs> really, that was, yeah. I mean, that was a big deal. Like now you see grouper sandwich, but it used to, I mean, that in the keys, you know, you go get a Jewfish sandwich and they could get one of those 500 pound fish. You know how many sandwiches they could yeah, make? I was going to say, that's a, a big sandwich. You know? your air fryer is gonna have to be you have to use like get one of those old containers and turn that into an air fryer that's things that thing's huge but like like you i can see both sides of it because you know in, in a way i'm an environmentalist not like in the way that you know um like when you say the term environmentalist i think the image of conjures most people especially if they're a sportsman is you know a tree hugger hippie they don't want any hunting or fishing of any kind but i think every sportsman 
is also, at least at some level, a conservationist. Um, I don't know. I mean, if, if you or ask me, I think that the, I think that the sportsmen, <laughs> the hunters and fishermen, with a self-imposed tax on everything that we buy for hunting and fishing, we are the ultimate conservationists. We are the ultimate environmentalists. We are the ones that actually are paying attention to the numbers and not just not just looking at. It. And then we're also the ones who are actually contributing financially to doing something about it, like. I don't know. I mean, yeah, you can have a, an environmentalist that doesn't hunt or fish and, and is, can be effective in what they do. But I don't know, man, hunters and fishermen, we put our money where our mouth is like we you want to you want to protect something. Well, we are actively doing it by purchasing hunting and fishing gear. And that's that's a self-imposed tax that goes back to things like boat ramps and and and, and law enforcement and habitat and all of that stuff. So, I, I mean, I, I mean, we're on the same page, but I don't don't forget that you know we all are doing a lot as hunters and fishermen oh i agree uh, you kind of jumped to the point i was building up to <laughs> but, <laughs> sorry man no, no it's fine it. no i was just like i was trying to build this narrative um by like covering all the bases but you 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 saw exactly where i was going um with that but what i was going to say is like i can see both sides you know the the conservation side and the recreation side um, and I understand the concerns, but there's a bunch of nuance in the middle too that I think gets mm -hmm. lost. You know, in almost any debate, whether it's politics or nature or whatever it might be, people are generally lazy. They they want it easy. I'm in this camp. I'm in this camp. Their arguing points are stuff you can I always call it bumper sticker debaters. Like I, I know what I'm up against if I just hear the same regurgitated nonsense I heard from. The last 10 people that I argued with and none of these are their own thoughts they just they saw it somebody else says like oh yep I agree with that lock that one away I'm going to use that later and they got a whole pouch full of one-liners but it doesn't it doesn't bring in all this other nuance that I think is important to give some some time to and what I mean by that is you have these, you know, I guess when it comes down to, you can look at any, what, what is somebody's motivation, right? Like just the scuba divers, they want, they don't want any of these killed because they want to go down there and they want to see a Goliath on every yeah, coral every head, spot. right? I, I get spot. that. Of course, easy. Why wouldn't you? Just like, to be fair, on the fishing side, the fishermen don't want that many because now they have to change what they do just like you were saying right. like i can't fish this spot anymore because every time i hook a, a yellowtail i gotta give it to the grouper so now i just this right. spot is gone now that's a hassle to me that's an inconvenience to me right and, and there may be there's there's lots of fishing guides that their that their customers definition of a successful day is bringing home a lemon their success their their definition might be the same or it might be different but when when you go there and you can't catch a limit of whatever it is that you're after because the goliath has eaten a lot of them and you can't keep the goliath then the customer there are these people out there who had a wonderful day of seeing all sorts of cool stuff but deep down they go home disappointed because they didn't get to bring home a limit of snapper of grouper of whatever right like they didn't get to right so it's a it's a failure somehow even though they shouldn't be yeah, looking at it. Right. Like well, that. Yeah. Well, that, there that's... are plenty of people that look at it that way. So, so a lot of the commercial guys or, or, or a lot of the charter guys might be thinking, dang, man, it's make, it's, it's harder and harder to catch a limit of something because they're getting eaten by the Goliath or, or they're just not there. They're not in these areas anymore. 
Right, and I understand why, like, the motivation behind both those camps or whatever your camp might be, but ultimately, um, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, like, because it's a sense of entitlement for that person in your hobby. You're putting your what you like to do. You're putting that over what somebody else likes to do. Bottom line, the the diver thinks that their hobby is more important than the fisherman, and the fisherman thinks that their hobby is more important than the diver. Now. Now we get a little deeper into the weeds and what you had already brought up. Well, who has a bigger say at the table? I think everybody has a voice, but I do think, as you said, some people put their money where their mouth is. Now, if anglers are willing to come together and agree to, you know, in support of a limited harvest and the, the tag is 300 bucks, that seems like a lot of money, but research costs a lot of money. And I would, lo- I would love to see something like that. I would be in total favor of that. And, yeah, they're going to start – pretty conservative at first to be safe and then they can monitor it and with that money they get a better view of what's going on under the water how many there are and then maybe the next year they're like yeah you know we took a hundred didn't even scratch it let's bump it up to 300 this year see what happens and i think when you go into it with a really conservation-minded management plan you're keeping in mind those other elements weather red tide, whatever those other factors are that generally have a greater impact on the overall population. Mm-hmm. But you have to keep that in mind. Like, this could happen. So we definitely don't want to bring it. We can control how many. The one thing we can control is how many we personally take out. That's what we can control. Mm-hmm. And we don't ever want to get anywhere close to that point where it's going to tip the scales over. We're buying those licenses. We're buying the the gear. Um all that tax money is going in and helping research and going back into the resource. And I'm all on board with that. The other point I was trying to make is if you are a diver and you love to see those fish, what, what are you, where, where's your, where are your dollars going to? Is, well, is, I mean, is part of, some is, of them are going to the charter operations. Some of them are, I mean, they have a point too. Like I can see their point, like the dive industry in the state of Florida is, large and in a lot of ways you could say maybe competitive to the fishing industry if you take out commercial fishing so recreational fishing and recreational diving they could you know if you're a diver you can make an argument that it's just as big as fishing and if you're a fisherman you can make an argument that it's not um Oh, nice. But there's there's significant dollars i mean there are people that are that are interested in diving and, and certainly there are plenty of people that both fish and dive. So what camp are they in? How, so you, you have to take those people kind of out of it. And I would say that's the majority. The majority of the people that like to dive also like to fish. And the majority of the people that like to fish do some diving at certain times of the year. Like maybe it's for lobsters or maybe it's spearfishing or whatever. But I think that the people that we're talking about, they like to be on the water. They like to be in the water. Like those are water people. Then you have people over here that are just divers and they would never touch a fishing rod. And then you have people that are just fishermen and they're terrified of getting in the water, man. They're not getting in the water for any reason in the world. Do you see what swims down there? I catch it every day. I don't want to be swimming with that stuff. I got tons of friends that, that, that feel like that. But, um, you know, you, you can say that uh, these people that dive, they buy half a million dollar boats, just like the fishermen buy half a million dollar boats. They want to get out to where it's rough 
on a rough day, they want to go diving out there, just like fishermen do. They buy gas, they buy food, they go to restaurants at night, they come to the Keys for two weeks at a time. They spend lots of money, lots of money. They may not have a self-imposed tax on their flippers and their, and their spear guns, but they, and, and I don't know, maybe that does count as fishing equipment. I, I don't, I wouldn't, I would, I don't know that. Maybe that is, maybe they're contributing in that way. Maybe a spear gun is part of the, the fi- I mean, it's fishing gear. Why wouldn't it be? I would, I would imagine think, that I would think be, a spear but I don't know gun, I think I never even a spear gun would be, I would, I would think, you would but think maybe so. not. But Who I mean, knows? But that's, what, 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 you, what I'm saying though, is that the divers are contributing. The fishermen are contributing. Both are contributing. So which is, which is more important? Well, I'm not saying that diving isn't expensive. Of course, it's insanely expensive. And even if you hire, you know, a boat, to, you know, you got to pay for that boat. He's probably charging mm-hmm. that exact same that a, a fishing charter would take out. Sure. But how much of that dollar, like you said, is that self-imposed tax? There's no license to dive, as far as I'm aware of, right? There's no... You have to have a license to spearfish. Spearfish, but I think mm-hmm. that I don't. Just to die I would put fishing don't. in with spearfishing in with fishing, right. like yeah, you're, yeah. you're harvesting. And again, like right. the people that are opposed to um, any harvest of the Goliath grouper, I'm gonna go out on a limb and say they probably don't spearfish anything. You know, these are just your photographers. Yeah, your... maybe I don't know. I mean, you 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 could you could see some people that like to spearfish and they're they're they have plenty of places that they like to spearfish and and they like to go over and maybe they run a dive operation too and 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 they want to take you know they got 25 percent of their people that like to they don't want to shoot anything they just want to go look at these big fish so i mean you're going to have you're going to have every every opinion under the sun and you're going to have you're going to have hardcore fishermen that that seriously oppose the the any take of goliath groupers um, because they maybe have experience and they've seen how cold weather can wipe them out. They've seen how, how red tide can wipe them out. And they've seen how, um, you know, people like to catch these things now. And with the, with the popularity of, of some of the YouTube pages, like they're charter fishermen now that, that make their living catching Goliath groupers and, and people are super happy and they're getting more charters than they've ever had before. And there's tons of people like that. And, you know, for that, that kind of goes into kind of why this is such an important decision. Cause some people, if you don't know about the Goliath grouper and you don't know uh, much about their habits or, or whatever, um, the Goliath grouper is a, is an impressive looking fish. It is a very, very large fish. As we have talked about, it's, uh, interesting looking. It's modeled. It has all kinds of colors on it. It looks like a dinosaur when you bring the thing up. It's got, it's got a mouth literally that you could fit a beach ball in, like not a basketball, but a beach ball would, would go, a pumpkin would go inside of its mouth. Like this thing is, is, it's an impressive fish to, to catch. Now, is it a difficult fish to catch? Not at all. In fact, it is probably one of the easiest outside of just the physical ability to get the fish to the boat, which requires heavy tackle and strong line and some technique. And you have to know what you're doing and it can run you back into the wreck. But of all the fish we fish for, a big Goliath grouper is probably the easiest fish to catch. I didn't get that big from being picky. Right. They eat (laughs) a lot of things. But the other thing about them is that, like when we want to go permit fishing or bone fishing or tarpon fishing, these fish move 
where you found them yesterday, you might not see a scale there tomorrow. And they move and they are, they move based upon the sun and the wind and the clouds and the barometric pressure and the tides and everything. Sometimes the salinity of the water, everything changes these things. A Goliath grouper, you might go to a wreck that's in 14, 15 feet of water and you can see the bottom. And every time you go by that wreck for the last two years, you've seen the same fish on the same end of that wreck or it seems like the same fish, right? It's a big Goliath grouper. There will be a Goliath grouper sitting on the edge, whether it's the same one you've seen for two years or not, it will be one of similar size and shape and color and it looks exactly the same. So what that means is if, if, if you are commercially harvesting these and there is uh, generous, there are generous limits like there were in the 50s and the 40s where you can go to the Keys and you can look on the restaurant walls and you can see these pictures of people that have a dozen giant Goliath groupers behind them and a couple in the pickup bed truck, you know, in the bed of the pickup truck. And, you know, they're, you know, kind of an Ernest Hemingway type picture where you got the, yeah, right. you got the guy in the, in the, <laughs> in the khaki suit and the, you know, you just caught all these fish. Right. And you can see those pictures all over and it looks incredibly impressive and it would do very well on social media and you get tons of likes and shares, but, it really wasn't that hard because you knew exactly where that one was and you went there and you caught it. And in the case of a spear fisherman, you could go there with a power head, which is a, an explosive charge on, on the end of your spear and punk, you hit him right in the head and it explodes on his head and he's dead. And you just swim that thing to the surface. And so the decision about harvest and opening the door to this is not the same as like, if you said, okay, well, we're going to allow, you know, two more bonefish to be harvested this year per day. Well, you still got to catch them. Like that's hard unless you're allowing nets or something like that. Right. Like, I don't know. I mean, I'm not for the, for the kill of, I mean, not really necessarily for the, the kill of bonefish. Um, but like that's a hard fish to catch. Most people aren't going to catch them. And so to allow a couple more for most people that aren't even going to catch any or don't even have any interest to catch any, that's different than, than opening the door. And this is some people's argument. That's different than opening the door and saying, go kill them, you know? And it would be kind of like, I don't know, what's a, what's a, what's a species that is just like in everybody's yard. I don't know, maybe turkeys these days. Yeah. Like what if all of a sudden people are like, man, there's too many turkeys and we're going to allow you to hunt them with rifles. And if you could hunt a turkey with a rifle, I mean, my God, you could sit away 300 yards away and you just pick them off in the middle of a field one after another. So, so that's kind of the, that's kind of the situation is like, what if all of a sudden the debate was there's way too many turkeys and we're going to allow people to take six per day with a rifle this year. And, We'll see what happens. Well, you probably know what's going to happen. I mean, people are going to take six per day. There's not going to be any turkeys left. Right. Right. It will happen. And, and so people with experience on the Goliath grouper and people that have been fishing since the fifties and the forties, and they've seen this thing go up and they've seen it go down they've seen cold weather kill them. They've seen red tide kill them and they've seen power heads kill them. And they've seen people overfish them and, and, and bring a four or 500 pound fish in for no reason. Nobody eats it. It just goes to waste. Like some of those guys might be opposed to it of, of just out of experience. Like, ah, we've seen this before. It's probably better just to leave them alone. You know? Well, it doesn't, again, it doesn't have to be an all or nothing thing. And I think 
you know, that's what the limited harvest part comes in. As far as the people that are opposed to it, they often jump to, they use their arguments, you know, like crazy hyperbole. And it's like, if you're going to kill one, they think you're going to wipe them all out. And again, drawing that analogy, this is a very similar, like there's so many similarities here between that Goliath debate and the wolf debate in Minnesota right now, because mm-hmm. with wolves, we have, I went, I went down the rabbit hole and I looked one time as I, I did an episode about it. And it's like Minnesota. And one of the facts that I think is just kind of crazy is Minnesota has more wolves than all of the Western States combined. And they mm-hmm. have hunting seasons out there. Wisconsin just right. had one last year and they went pretty conservative. I think it was 200 animals. And of course, now I got to call out some of the sportsmen because you're supposed to like self-report. You had so many days to report your tag and, this is not hearsay. People literally did this and they were told like, Hey, if you shoot one on the first day, don't report it till the very last minute. Otherwise they'll shut Mm. the season down sooner. So they went over quota. So now all the people that are against the wolf hunt are saying, calling it a massacre. They went way over their quota, which is true. And those hunters, I believe have to take the brunt of the responsibility, especially because they sure seems like they intentionally did that because they're the ones that like demonize the wolf from their perspective. However, that number 200 was set extremely conservative on the overall Wisconsin mm-hmm. population. So even though they went over quota, they didn't even scratch the population. And we now we know that looking at what it is now, even after they went over quota last year, <laughs> the packs are fine. Like there's no big deal. Mm-hmm. And somehow the state of Minnesota has by far the most wolves of any state in the lower 48, and we still don't have a season on it. It's just it's it's kind of crazy. Hmm. So going back to the Goliath thing, it's like I understand how people are cautious to even crack that door open a little bit, but it doesn't mean we're going to wipe them out. You start really conservative, and you and you see what happens. The, the another thing you can make analogous to is uh, duck and goose hunting and waterfowling. Like every year, they take the surveys, they see what's going on with numbers, and then they adjust that year's season as needed. Right. So, if if and what we found with research is that it is stuff like weather, weather and and food availability is by far the biggest factor when it comes to waterfall numbers, probably the same thing for Goliath groupers. You know, it's, did you have a cold snap? How many got wiped out? You know, and just because you have a season this year, maybe you don't have one next year because that winter leading up to it, you had a big cold snap. Like, well, we don't get, we don't get to have it this year because X Mm -hmm. amount of Goliaths died naturally, but that doesn't mean we won't have one again the, the next year. This is all dependent on putt, on what we see and that comes back to those dollars that means you're going to have to have more research you're going to have to have people looking into it every year this isn't a one and done it's yeah. not a set it and forget it kind of thing yeah you know it's a it, it, there's a little bit of a difference like with the duck and goose though that like you can you can go to a, a flyway where, where, where you know typically they're migrating over and, and one person can sit there and stare at the sky and see tons of ducks and geese like they should be flying over and there are none right like that's that's pretty telling but with the goliath grouper a lot of times 
you got to actually go to a particular site, get in the water and dive it. And you're only going to be able to one boat, one person is only going to be able to do that. Maybe what, five, eight, let's just say it's an incredible day. you got a dozen, you got a dozen different sites. Well, I don't know. I guess you always have kind of these, these indicative type spots where if they're here, they're probably everywhere, but um, not necessarily the case. This one might be a little bit deeper than something else. And there might be a, a contour line where a lot were killed uh, by cold weather. And if they were a little bit deeper than that, then they were fine. I don't know. It's, it just seems like it's not as easy to get a count on, on fish that are in the ocean as it might be. Um, well, I'm sure you know, it comes with the level geese. of difficulty. I mean, even, um, even wolf numbers are, you know, a guess when you really come down to it, you know, they do aerial, mm -hmm. you know, but where they live right. is really dense woods. Like you, you kind of try to right. see what you can get and then take a snapshot. I mean, are they doing any sort of tagging studies on Goliath? At um, all? I'm sure they are. I don't know of any. Um, and I'm sure that there are, are tagging studies going on. Um, but again, like the tagging study for like, like we talked about for fish, like a tarpon, that is going to be funded. Uh, you, you know, you may have some research going on, but those tags, like a satellite tag, those things are expensive, man. Those are like $5,000. So, oh, yeah. you know, it's one thing if it's a government study done for, for food. And it's another thing if it's a, if it's a fish like a Goliath grouper, like at some point there are going to be uh, financial restrictions to what you can do. And, you know, satellite tags are, are one of them, but even a satellite tag for a Goliath grouper seems to be kind of boring. I could be way wrong, but you know, you're going to tag that fish and it's going to go back to where you caught it and then it's going to stay there. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or we think, <laughs> yeah, I you mean, can see that I mean, it's alive. Yeah. Like, uh, but, but yeah, this is, this is what we thought would happen. We thought it would go back here and stay in this small area. And then every now and then it takes a little jaunt over to shallow water or whatever, but but it basically stays right there. Now, now some of the smaller ones, that would be very interesting to me of, of knowing, okay, you know, I've seen, I've seen studies where it says uh, they're six to eight years, they live in shallow water. And then, then where do they go? And, and what is the, when is it that they feel the need to migrate away from the shallow water? Like when and why, and where would they go? Do they just go to the closest spot or is there, you know, the closest deepest spot or, you know, do they go there and it's like us checking into a hotel. Oh, this one's full. I got to keep moving. And, you know, then they go to the next one. And if there's no place for them there, then they keep going and keep going and keep going. But um, that would be actually more interesting to me as an angler um, for the tagging studies. But I don't know about the tagging studies. I mean, I've never caught one that's that's tagged. Um, I could be way wrong there. And, and certainly it could be going on in other areas like the Jupiter area. There's tons tons of goliaths up there and they could be doing stuff up there that i'm not aware of the any information you get from tagging is good information like it doesn't have to be dynamic i understand what you're saying it's like they tag this goliath on a wreck and he's every time they check it he's always there okay well then now we know you know because earlier on in mm -hmm. our conversation sure. like you can go to that wreck and there's always a big grouper is it the same one i don't know there's no way to know well the tagging system is going to let you know that i mean i caught a tagged redfish mm -hmm in Hilton head and it was, it didn't go anywhere. I mean, it was, 
the the redfish and at least that redfish and and Hilton Head wasn't traveling very far. It was had a pretty small home range. Some slight changes seasonally, I'm sure, but not nothing crazy. Does that mean it is a waste of time to tag that fish? How long no, of it was? How long of a period was it between? How, how long of a period? Well, was it was it was, it was tagged. I think it was a few years. Is it, it was tagged as a pretty big fish already. I think when I caught it, it was thirty. Hmm. 38 inches i think it was tagged at like 36 or something so it wasn't it wasn't anything crazy and mm-hmm. uh and again that's only a little snapshot yeah but you, you know, know the the crazy thing about that is that yeah i know you're only getting a snapshot so so let's just say you you tag that fish and then three years ago or three years from now it's caught in exactly the same place well you still don't know that in the meantime it didn't travel all the way up to Maryland right. and then come back and then down to the keys and then back up. And, and it just spends that time of the year in that area. I mean, so that tells you something, but there's also a lot of things that it doesn't tell you. The interesting study I see right now is the FIU um, study on Jack Cravels and uh, you know, Jack Cravels are a fish that get caught all over the place. And there are a lot of tagging things going on with the Jack Cravel and recapture of the fish. Uh, because a lot of people, you know, you catch them as bycatch when you're red fishing or when you're tarpon fishing or whatever. So um, I think a lot of them are getting recaptured. Um, and and it's showing way bigger movement than I certainly thought that they that they did. I kind of was like, oh, the jacks are here and they, they live here and they probably don't go very far. But no, they go real far. They look and, like they're um, they look like they're I mean, built they for distance. One, they are. I mean, you know, they're, they're, they are, they're certainly a fish uh, to me. They look like they're built for, for speed and eating, but that maybe they just follow the food, you know, and then, and, and they're just, they're doing nothing more than following a bait fish migration. So where there's, where there's ample food, they just, they're just eating and happy. And next thing you know, they're up in Tampa. And it's like, Damn, <laughs> yeah, yeah. maybe we better get back to the cliche you know? <laughs> or, yeah, uh, maybe. or we, we ate all this, we ate all this bait. So let's go back where there's some ballyhoo or, you know, I don't know. Uh, I don't know how it happens, but the, the fact is that it does happen and, and they are moving, you know, through, through a lot of areas. I, I love the, I love the studies on the, on the fish. And, and, oh, I do too. I dork, know, I dork out on stuff go, like this. The wolf studies are, are really cool. Like how far, those wolves will go like overnight. Like they might just get the, get the whiff of something or, or something happens and man, 30 miles, boom, they're, they're, they're out of there. Yeah, I mean, they, they don't, don't stop. They don't stay still. Like they don't just hang out. Like they're, they're constantly on the move. Yeah. Just, it's incredible. animal. Yeah, the they are. They're super incredible. Uh, I would, I'm super interested in all that. Um, you know, the life cycles of just about every fish. And I think the good, and I see what you're saying, but any any information to me is good information. It's more than you had yesterday, mm-hmm. even if it's sure. even if it doesn't make you go, "Holy crap!" It's like, "Wow, well, this is what we thought." Well, now we know. Now it's not just I think. Now it's we know. So, to me, I think any information is good information. And the more people that get involved, um, the more voices you have at the table, the more dollars that go towards that research. You're gonna get. You know, people are gonna innovate. They're gonna find ways of. And even if it's just a small group of researchers that dedicate their life to the Goliath grouper, you know, they're going to study this part of it. And it's like, okay, well, we've learned what we can learn about this part. Now we're going to study this part. And that might be 
the young ones and the mangroves and you know mm-hmm. when and how do they make their transition there's no the only one way you're going to find that out and is that's to spend money on it and go look at it i mean seems simple right. enough but we have to do that and that'll give us a snapshot but all right, well, we've gone over an hour on Goliath Groupers. <laughs> Could probably talk for another hour pretty well, easy. I don't know if we're any further along with the debate. Well, here's a, here's a fun thing to do. If you, were, if you were king of the world, if you were king of Florida, and what you say goes, what would be your solution? What would you do? What would be your ruling as of today as far as Goliath Groupers are concerned? Me? I don't know, man. I, I'm certainly not a scientist and I don't have any scientific data to, to prove it, but I do believe, I, I do believe strongly in, in our right to, to fish. And I do believe I, I don't, I think in some situations and probably in the sixties, it was probably exactly the right move to just close it and put a moratorium on on taking any Goliath groupers. It obviously worked, right? But I think that when the numbers are up um, and you can see that and science is supporting that, that having a mechanism to get money back into the, into the research is, is very advantageous to the, you know, to the overall health of the species so that we can do tagging studies so that there can be at least one researcher that is that that all of this data goes to that can organize it and make some sort of a uh, I mean there's got to be somebody that's in charge of the Goliath grouper so maybe maybe a hundred licenses at three hundred dollars a piece is enough to establish an office and, and put a researcher in charge of all of that uh, to where any data that comes in about Goliath grouper even if it's data that is collected while you're studying other fish can go there and then that can become you know part of this file on the Goliath grouper and somebody is actually managing it and making it their life's work that would be I think a very good thing. I think that that is where hunting and fishing can contribute the most to conservation is to um, create financial um, resources for something like that to happen. So if I'm the king of Florida and the Goliath grouper population is what it is today, I'm saying open it up uh, on a very conservative level to allow people to take a fish of a certain size determined by science that that would be the best size to take for spawning reasons, a certain time of the year. Um, So you don't want to take those fish in spawning time of the year. You want to take them outside of spawning time of the year where they've already spawned. So maybe it's after the spawn and allow somebody to pay a lot of money. And, and you know what, there are people out there that would probably pay $10,000 to, to kill one of those giant Goliath groupers and have it mounted in their office. And if, okay, good. We need that money and we need that research. And it doesn't seem like it's going to be, you know, I, I don't know. For, I, mean, I, I mean, that's what I would say. For as much as I'm, this term gets a lot, it has a lot of negative connotation to it, trophy hunting, I think it can be right. applied to this. You know, if it wasn't for trophy hunting, a lot of these big game animals in Africa would have no value. They're a detriment sure. to most people that live there. They destroy crops and, you know, lions are killing goats and everything else. Again, that's another deep rabbit hole. I don't really want to go down right now, but 
to compare it to this, it's like, yeah, if you had a very limited harvest, but you charge a lot of money for it, and I get some people are going to be like, well, then it becomes a rich man's sport, and that's not fair. We Again, looking at the big picture, don't demonize that aspect of it. Well, be thankful I mean, that you have somebody that's willing to spend ten thousand dollars to put right. I mean, a rich man sport for one fish. Like, I mean, yeah. If a rich man wants to spend ten thousand dollars to kill a Goliath grouper, I mean, that benefits everyone because that, if done properly, what we're talking about, if that money goes back into research and that research is done for preservation of the species and for protection of the species and for trying to determine what uh, what an allowable catch per year is, then it seems like um, that's a good thing. And, you know, it doesn't have to be a rich well, man. One, Somebody could save all their pennies and, sure. and that's the one thing they want to do in their life right. and they pay their $10,000 and they can, they can kill that fish and maybe the only $10,000 that they have. But um, I don't know. I mean, somewhere along the line, you've got to uh, dedicate some resources to you got to get the money from, somewhere. I think. Yeah. And I think that, um, I think a conservative harvest is, is fine at this point. And I would be in favor of that. And if I were the King of Florida, I think that that's what I would kind of advocate for. Um, well, you, you know, wouldn't have to advocate for it. You're the king. What you say goes. If I was the king of Florida, <laughs> first of all, if I was the king of Florida, first of all, I'd fix all the water problems. Yeah. And I, then, yeah. I, then all the fish, we, we wouldn't have a, an issue with so many of these fish. And and the red tide and the, the water pollution issues wouldn't be, um, wouldn't be like something that is that you have to always – think about on the horizon, like you don't want to kill too many of these glass groupers because you could have this big event. Well, in a lot of ways, we're really, really, really in control of whether that big event happens or not. So cancel everything I said in the beginning. And if I'm the king of Florida, <laughs> the number one thing is to fix the water issues in yeah. Florida and do it quickly and make sure that we have these resources for our grandchildren. And I think everything else comes after that. And of course, uh, there all fish are going to be abundant and limits can go up on every fish probably. Um, but you that's know, why water, we have, and that's why we have, have they the, don't have the right water. To yeah. And we haven't talked about this, but the captains for clean water, that's pretty much what they're trying to tackle. Right. That's kind of their mission statement. Right. No, I mean, absolutely. They are tackling it. And, um, and, and that's what a lot of people, you know, especially probably your audience may not understand if they, they get on the news and they see that the, you know, there's dead fish as far as you can see. A lot of that is, is, is there, there are some, you know, a lot of people would just throw their hands up and be like, well, what do you do about it? Like, I don't know, but captains for clean water and among other groups, there are, solutions for this like there are solutions that we can control with our vote with our money with our support um that can make a huge difference in in what is going on and what is going on is effluent um from the lake okeechobee area that goes out both sides of the state and can cause major issues if if it's just allowed to just go out there they're oh. these big i've seen some of their videos when they're plans. when they're releasing those waters and it's just like looks yeah. like toxic green sludge it's crazy yeah it's, it's not good so you know you, if, if if there are plans that that water could be cleaned up before it's sent down the river and into the ocean to where all of those toxins hit a hot area of water with lots of 
of life in it and it just explodes into this into this uh, uh, toxic red tide or black tide we've had, which that was the real weird one to me. Nobody knew really what it was and killed all kinds of grass. And if the grass dies, then the fish die. And, and you know, we're just now recovering from this big grass die off that we had in the Everglades, thanks in, in, in large part to the work of Captains for Clean Water, among other uh, groups. And, uh, you know, it's just so bad to see what's going on in Tampa right now, because like, it, it's controllable even down to the individual of deciding, you know, I'm going to have the most beautiful lawn in the whole neighborhood or, uh, you know, I'm not going to put any, any chemicals on my lawn and yeah, maybe it looks okay. Maybe it doesn't, uh, you know, I mean, that's a, that's a big decision. And over the course of a year, over the course of 10 years, one individual on their lawn can be contributing heavily to the, to the, to the problem. And when you have, you know, hundreds of thousands of individuals doing that on their lawn, that, that is a decision that, that can, we can make. And I'm not saying it's every single homeowner is the cause of the problem. I'm just saying that that is a contributing factor. And, and when people, you know, throw their hands up and go, what do you do? Red tide's natural. Well, maybe that is the case, but red tide at the level that we're seeing it right now does not seem to be natural and it seems to be supercharged by the things that the choices that we're making every single day. Yeah. And I, and I think a lot of people and lazily will throw the, just, just blame climate change. Well, it's warmer. Well, that could play a role in it, but I think a bigger factor yeah. is just what you say is like the nutrients, like what are we doing that is exacerbating it? And we have the same thing in Minnesota here. I mean, it does, it doesn't affect salt water, but people that fertilize their lawns, you know, you get a rain like it's doing right now. Uh, runs off into the water. A lot of that fertilizer runs off. Now you're fertilizing the lake. Warmer water right. in the summertime. You have these giant algae blooms, and they're a pain for everybody. Well, I mean, fishermen don't like it. Recreational boaters don't look, like it. I mean, it's that's how you just that's how you just uh, explain the water problem of Florida to to people that have never been to the state of Florida or never seen the beach. You did it in a in a in a microcosm of what Florida is a small lake that everybody's putting nutrients in and then it warms up and you have this giant algae bloom. That's no different really than what's going on in the state of Florida, just on a much, much bigger level. Uh, With greater impacts. With much greater impact. I mean, and, and, you know, who, who, who should be interested in these, in these type of uh, issues? Like, well, obviously fishermen and charter fishermen and divers and all that, but man, everybody else who wants to go to a beach that's littered with literally millions of dead fish it stinks it's gross you don't swim in it you can hardly breathe because the the air is 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 i mean you can hardly breathe like you hear people say that but when you experience it you're like ah man i don't something's affecting my lungs like there's something wrong well and you go inside and you're like oh i feel okay now you walk back outside you're like "Ah, damn something's in my I don't, I don't feel good. Well, it's red tide. And, and what you're feeling is, you know, multiply it by a thousand. That's what these fish are feeling until they just die because there's no oxygen there. And, and it, it is, I don't know. It's, it's a, I was, it's an issue that, that uh, I, I just kind of got behind because instead of just seeing people complain about it and, uh, throw up their hands or just get pissed and start pointing fingers at the other side and screaming and shouting. I saw a group captains for clean water 
actually come to the table with solutions and education of, look, this is what's going on. This is how you can help. And it is not a lost cause. And when I saw that, I was like, man, that's something I can get behind because I don't like seeing people just point the finger and, and, and screaming at the other side, like, it's your fault. It's your fault. It's you. That pushes no one. It never helps. No, it never helps. When, when someone comes and they have a real solution and all it takes is awareness and money and, and a few people to work their ass off to get it done, man, that's, that's something I can really get behind. And, and then, then the, the, the reward is the way it should be for our great grandchildren. Like that's the reward. It's like, not, you're not going to get like uh, money or anything like that. You're going to get the health of the fishery and the health of the beaches and the health of the air and the health of, of really of the state of Florida, the financial, the economic, the, the natural, all of that is wrapped into the water issues in Florida. And, you know, if the water issues in Florida are healthy and, and we, we, can, we can create healthy water, then we can worry about this Goliath grouper bait. <laughs> then we can worry about whether there are too many sharks. Uh, and then we can worry about all of these other things. So the guys in Tampa right now, they're worried about, are they ever going to be able to fish again? Like yeah. it, it's, it's not good. And, and I mean, it will, I, I have great confidence that it will rebound, but you know, I mean, it, it's taking a hit right now. Is there, and, is and, there like a, um, like, is it negative? The, the fish that die from the red tide, are they just like, like do birds eat them? Do the crabs eat them? Cause I was down there in early June. I was actually down there taking a, a captain's course and like, yeah, I saw it. I, there's dead fish floating everywhere. And I was like, Man, you think every seagull and and uh, pelican yeah. across the land would just be fat and happy? And man, the crabs must be loving life because there's just dead fish. You think that, man? But but I can tell you that the crabs don't feel good either. Like this stuff, it's it's not like like if a if a fish dies in healthy water and goes to the bottom, the crabs tear it apart. Right. And, and if you came back there, I used to do this all the time in my, you know, our house is on canal and, and you throw the Thanksgiving Turkey in there when you're done, done eating it. Right. And, and the whole carcass of the Turkey goes in the water and then it's a cloud of snappers and, and, and all kinds of fish. And, and then there's crabs on the bottom and, and you look in there in an hour and you see bones literally picked clean and that's all that's left. There is nothing left. And then if you look in there in, in a week, those bones are now broken apart and they've been eaten and, and everything's the ocean eats everything. Right. But not in the case of a red tide. And there's too much, like there are not enough crabs in the sure. world to eat the amount of, of dead fish that there are when, when you have a red tide occurrence, like, yeah, I'm sure some crabs are eating that some seagulls are eating it, but the seagulls don't feel good either. Well, that's like, the thing is like I, I was I was watching I was watching the birds and it's like they weren't either they were full or they were just not interested. Like I still saw well, I mean, pelicans. You're, you're like you're, diving. you're a you're you're a fisherman and a hunter and you know like when you're going to go live bait for any species, you want the freshest, healthiest bait 
possible, right? Like you want that bait to look natural. When that bait dies and it's been sitting in your live well, and now leave that in your live well with no water for two days, and now try to catch a fish on it. It's disgusting. You don't want to touch it. The fish don't want it either. Like that's gross and nasty and it's not natural. And yeah, maybe a crab would eat it and some of the, some of the tiny, you know, little things that, that, that make their living on dead, decaying, nasty stuff, but nothing else wants it. Like, you don't see seagulls eating. If there's there's too much of the resource that they can't even consume it, then it just rots. And then that rot, that rot can exacerbate the problem. Here's me being amateur biologist, um, just from having aquariums growing up that if you overfeed your fish, they can't eat all the food. It goes down in the rocks. It starts to rot, breaks down, gives off ammonia, choose up oxygen, dissolved oxygen. So now you have an, a whole nother problem, which I can see the same thing happening with all those dead fish. Yeah, there's more than the crabs can right. eat. Now they're just breaking down and all those other Yeah, I mean, process. you know, we're, we're fortunate that, that the ocean works the way it does with the tides and stuff like that. And you have these big tide changes that will, you know, disperse a lot of that dead and decaying stuff over time it will, the ocean will kind of clean that up to an extent, but when it all happens at once, it's far too much to, to, to have one tide or two tides or 10 tide changes, get rid of all of that. Plus it pools in certain areas like dead floating dead fish are going to go where floating dead grass goes like in, right. in the yeah. back of canals and, mm-hmm. and, and places, you know, coves and 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 little areas that don't get a lot of current flow and now it's just gross and yeah it sounds nasty (laughs) yeah if all that stuff was if all that was fresh and and nice and you know you 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 clean out your live well and and you start throwing out freshly dead pilchards yeah the the pelicans are 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 digging it man they they love that or 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 fish cleaning you know, at the fish cleaning table, you're throwing fresh guts in the water and stuff like that. But if you let that sit there for three days and you throw it in the water, no bird around is going to eat it. It's disgusting. Yeah. And uh, that's what that's what you're seeing out there. Yeah, so people can take a look. And you don't have to be in Florida if this be your issue. You know, look into Captains for Clean Water. Um, I mean, who's not who's not on board with clean water? I mean, it <laughs> sounds obvious, but... Right. Well, you know, Captains for Clean Water is a great organization. If that's the one that you choose to to support, I mean, that's a that's an easy one to support because that that's that, they have a they have a real good story, especially for for the audience that listens to either your podcast or mine. I mean, these guys are regular fishing guides that that found themselves in a really bad situation of a water issue happened where they guide and all the fish are dying, and they're like, man, we got to do something about this. I mean, that's as simple as their story is mm-hmm. that. And there's no, there's no other motivation to it. We got to do something about it. And if I don't do something about it, then who's going to do something about it. And so you have, you know, uh, Daniel Andrews and Chris Whitman devote their life to this, this issue. And, and they're making, they're making a real big difference uh, for, for a very small organization. They're making a very large difference and it wouldn't, you know, they, they're not, um, they have more on their plate than they can handle right now with, with Tampa and that whole area and Okeechobee. But, you know, I could see captains for clean water uh, being 
just just for anybody that advocates clear clean water the same thing that's going on in your lake mm-hmm. um you know as captains for clean water becomes a more uh mature organization and maybe maybe hopefully uh some of the water problems are resolved in florida and they have a little more time and and, and energy that they could devote to putting different chapters in different parts of the country and and developing a nice lobby for clean water um, you know, advocated by people that use that clean water. That's all it is like captains for clean water. It's people for clean water, anybody for clean water that uses that, that, that area. So, you know, in the future, maybe there's an advocate for your lake, uh, that you described so well. We definitely have different yet very similar issues in Minnesota. I mean, there's different mines are always being proposed and there's a, a, nickel mine that's been trying to go through the works now for quite a while and it's going to be right up on the boundary waters canoe area wilderness which is super pristine it's gorgeous up there um and that's a perfect example for it it's like nobody wants this mine except for the people that are going to get rich off the mine because they have terrible environmental track record and once that pollution gets into the the uh boundary waters canoe area it's just going to be there i mean it's these are super infertile um canadian shield lakes like this it'd be it would be devastating not and i don't think that's overselling it like i'm not one to go to the to instantly go to hyperbole hyperbole but it's a bad deal so yeah i agree with what you're saying like i think hopefully um this captains for clean water thing grows and it kind of i mean every who like i said who doesn't want clean water we all have every state no matter where you live in has some sort of issue with water and we, right. all, we need it to live as humans. Everything needs water to live as humans or as, as living things on this planet. It's like, it, that's like the one thing we all have in common. Everything needs water. So it's very cool. All right. Well, let's wrap this one up, Tom. What's, what's going on new in your world? What on your TV shows and your podcast? Uh, well, we, uh, we have, uh, a bunch of different things going on. We have Saltwater Experience, which is the show that I'm on with my partner, Rich Tudor. We have Into the Blue, which is a show that we produce um, with Scott uh, Scott Walker and Steve Roger. That's an offshore show. We have uh, Sweetwater, which is a bass show with uh, Miles Berghoff and Joey Mania. And then we have a YouTube show called Guides and Tides. And then we have the Tom Rowland Podcast. So, um, you know, on the podcast, we're, well, I guess everybody right now is the week before ICAST. So there's kind of a little mad, mad scramble. ICAST is the industry uh, trade show that a lot of people go to. So it's a really good time and place to uh, meet people, sponsors, other things, any sort of collaboration or whatever kind of happens at ICAST. And uh, it's, it's definitely our most important show. So we're doing a lot of, um, uh, preparation for that. that that happens next week and um you know just getting ready to to start shooting for the for the next year we've got uh um we usually try to get way ahead and um so we're going to be shooting in uh august and september and october and november and december we will be shooting all of those months for for all of the different shows and uh hopefully come up with some awesome shows for next year yeah uh, i expect uh, i expect good things because that's what the so far what I've what I've watched and listened to it's all been written really good. I really enjoy your podcast. Thanks. Um, yeah, it's it's very good and 
and motivational. I think that's I think that's great. So that's a good as place as any to end it right there. Tom, thanks again for right coming on. on. This well, has been awesome. I appreciate you having me. You bet.